Personally, I think we are all creative human beings, no matter if you work in a creative field or not. And the best thing, in my opinion, that you can do is consume as much art as possible. This is Writers in Tech, a podcast where today's top content strategists, UX writers and content designers share their well-kept industry secrets. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Writers in Tech, a podcast brought to you by the UX Writing Hub. My name is Yuval, and I am the founder of the UX Writing Hub, which is an online education platform for writers in tech, UX writers, content designers, product writers, and so on. Feel free to check our website. We have a free UX writing course, and we have a weekly blog post and a weekly newsletter, and we create a lot of content for free. To including this podcast, by the way, to everyone that wants to get into this field. And today I have a guest. This is the second time that we're trying to do this thing because we had a bug in the first time, unfortunately. But I'm very happy for the opportunity to have her for the second time. For you, it's going to be the first. Her name is Sarah Loige. And Sarah is lead UX writer at Parkside Interactive, which is an agency that sits in Austria. And Sarah is doing a lot of fascinating things that I will leave her the room to talk about. Hey, Sarah, how are you? Hey, thank you so much for having me again. I'm so excited to talk to you. And I think we got some really cool topics today. Awesome. First of all, last time we've talked, I really want us to, to cover this, but we talked about Figma and the way that you work with Figma. What I like the most about this talk is the way that you said that you use the different plugins and tools. So... What's happening right now in Figma and the different tools? Yes. So I think in general, in the UX writing world, there is a lot happening. There are a lot of tools being released, specifically Figma plugins from communities that are really good at helping the UX writer to do their job. So nowadays, it's really more about work smarter, not harder, because UX writer roles are taking on more responsibility. So it's not just anymore writing a few texts for the design somewhere in a Figma file. It's also about copy management. It's about translations. And as soon as a project scales up and you have, let's say, five, 600 copies in one project, you need to work smart and use these plugins to be efficient and actually create a source of truth for your text. So what we see right now is that there's two tools right now that are used a lot in Figma. One is called Ditto, one is called Frontitude. They're both for copy management and UX writing. And you can really see how both of these tools are creating new features, trying to improve the workflow for UX writers. And I highly suggest checking those out because they can make your life as a UX writer so much easier. And to those that are listening and are on the fence, so based on what you know right now, what would be the main use cases for each tool? So both are at the moment very similar. Frontitude just recently had a big feature release where they brought out a lot of features that Dito has already been implementing in the last few months, I would say. So I think both can be used in the same cases. And I would suggest using these plugins for mid to bigger size projects where you may have translations, where you will have to handle a lot of copy duplicates. So a lot of similar titles, words, and so on, because both 
of these tools provide very powerful ways of saving text components and being able to reuse them. And if you actually work with translations and you need to have translations in your designs together with your UX designers, you 100% should check out both of these plugins because you can manage translations and have for each component a different, you know, let's say German, English, whatever language that you set up. And when you say copy management, so how exactly it works? Does it like a click of a button and send it to a spreadsheet or like a dashboard and it works both ways, something like that? At the moment, I'm using Dito a lot, so I will use that as a reference for now. Dito is a plugin that you can use directly in Figma. So you will have the little Dito plugin open and you can change copies and you can create components on the fly. So as you're looking at the designs and you see maybe there's a text that you're reusing, you can turn it into a component. And once you change the component in the plugin, it changes everywhere, which makes your work, of course, a lot easier. Additionally, for Dito, you have the website where you have a basically a desktop website where you can manage the copies you can group them you can now you can create folders for different projects which i really love and you can look at all your components and you can actually also export them so what these tools have as well is apis that the developers could use to pull the text pull the translations from the tool directly having even more of a source of truth for the text so there's no more this situation where the developer has to go in and copy the text manually, they can actually pull it with the API from Ditto, which is, of course, something that also saves the developers a lot of time. So yeah, this is pretty much how you can use it if you want to. And how does it work when it comes to like, okay, so I'm using components when building a design system on Figma. So let's say that I'm building like notification and I have a piece of text that says like your text here. So What's the parallel to it when building like a reusable text component in Ditto? What you can do with the text components, you, you have to add an ID, right? You have a unique ID. For example, you could call it project-notification-text1, right? And, and that mm -hmm. makes it unique. So if it's exported to a developer, they will know under this ID, they will find this certain text. And because you have this ID, this object, you can easily add translations to it. So don't think of it as just a singular piece of text. Think of it as an object that includes the ID, the text you have, and maybe, for example, the German version, any other translations, and so on. So it's, it's a very smart object. You can even add tags and comments and the status if you want to communicate to someone else like, hey, this text is not final, this is in draft, or you want to add a tag and you can filter by that later on. So the text you have become a lot smarter than just a piece of text, which is really, really cool. So I'm motivated to try out these tools right now. So thanks That's for great. that. <laughs> That's good. So let's step back a little bit. I know that you have an interesting background. So you are now a lead UX writer, but you did a transition from product design, from UX design, right? So how did it go exactly? Yes. So originally, I was actually more on the development side of things. I have a technical education background. And then when I joined Parkside, I was first a software tester. And I wanted to go more towards working with the client in the beginning of a product development, product design, where something doesn't exist or something needs to be redesigned. So I switched to UX design. And from there on out, I studied, I learned from my colleagues. And at some point, I think every UX designer kind 
kind of ask themselves the questions, how do, how do I want to work? Do I want to specialize in something or do I want to be this unicorn that does everything? And for me, I discovered UX writing because I'm actually a person that likes to write a lot of poetry, write a lot of stories. And I've always had this connection with language and public speaking, things like that. So for me, when I discovered UX writing, I was like, oh, I have to, I have to try this. So Transitioning from UX design to UX writing is actually, I think, a very good path to go because you already have the UX basics. Like you have the understanding of UX, of usability. You maybe have done some research. You've worked with design tools already and with designers. And that can really help you to move those rocks out of the way that have to do with the design aspect of UX. And then you get into UX writing and suddenly you learn all of these new things about the texts in the interfaces and the UX and UI designs that have such a huge impact on how the users actually perceive the software. And that's how I kind of broke into UX writing. And currently, I'm also, of course, doing the UX writing certification with you at the UX writing hub, which is also helping me to learn even more what what there is additionally to UX when it comes to the UX writing side. Amazing. What was your favorite part of the UX writing flex? Ooh, I think my favorite part is just working with my mentor, Millie. She's really great. And there's this big part of the course where you have to create your own UX writing project, which is like an e-commerce platform website. And I had so much fun coming up with ideas, testing the idea, coming up with screens for that and testing those screens, which I'm currently doing and talking to my mentor about how I can improve those copies. So what fascinated me the most about this course is that I really learned from the start of an idea of a product or project idea to the research, then the UX writing, and then the testing, like this whole timeline of how a UX writing project can look for a UX writer, which is very unique because even in my work, I often only get to do a certain part in a project and not the whole life cycle, let's say. So that's what I would say I definitely enjoyed the most so far in the course. All right. That's awesome. Thank you for the kind words. It took us a lot of years to build it. So uh, I'm happy that uh, you find a lot of value in it. It's really great. Yes. So I know that before we start recording, you told me about a really cool project that you've been working on that is related to conversation design and building a chatbot. And I'd love to hear more about this case study because we have many people that in our audience that are writers. Some of them are UX writers and some of them also are conversation designers. And I'm also curious to learn about the different challenges that you have when you design a chatbot versus when you design and write content for a UI for user interface. Yes, uh, last year I worked on a project for a social media slash recruiting platform. And the whole concept of this product is to be revolutionizing the hiring market, disrupting the hiring market, being very exciting for the users, not just, you know, the dry hiring candidates and company process that you see. And one part of this was a chatbot. And the interesting part about writing a chatbot or designing a chatbot, you could also say, is that you do not have any visual attributes. 
right? So when you're making copy for UI designs or for UX wireframes, you will often create something visual or have something visual from one of your design colleagues working on it. So you set that into relation and you may be able to tweak some of the text based on the visuals that you see. With the chatbot, the text carries everything, the information that the personality that the chatbot has, all the process behind what the chatbot is covering. So the writing has to handle it all. And that makes writing a chatbot, specifically one with AI in the background, which is what I had to do, a very big challenge. And this is something where people say like, oh, why do you need a UX writer? You need a UX writer for something like this 100%. So that was kind of a big challenge. And there are many aspects to designing or writing a chatbot. And in the beginning, I also didn't really know what to do because the client was unsure about, or let's say we and the client, we were all unsure about whether it should have a personality or not. And it was a bit of a tricky situation because we didn't know what would be better in terms of UX, right? So in the end, we still wanted to have a very unique and pleasurable experience for the users, which is why we decided to actually have a personality. So I said at my work, uh, and I had no idea how to do this. Right? I had no idea how to create a personality. And I had no idea what that would mean for the chatbot text. So what I had to do was brainstorm a little bit. And I couldn't really come up with any idea that was interesting or unique. So I really struggled. And I think this is the creative moment part where any person that works in a creative space, no matter if you're a UX writer, a writer or a designer, kind of doubts themselves, right? We doubt ourselves and we're like, what am I even doing? Do I, can I make the right syndrome, decision? Right? Yes, the imposter syndrome hits really, really hard. And uh, it was actually inspiration that came from my real life outside of work that helped me develop this personality concept. I knew I couldn't start writing for the chatbot until I have this concept in place. So at the time, I was watching a lot of Star Trek. And there's this one droid called Data, who's a really lovable character. And I started to realize there are so many movies, specifically sci-fi fantasy movies and futuristic movies, where there's these lovable droids, right? Lovable robots. Some of the fan favorite characters of any kind of franchise, like let's say Star Wars, Star Trek, games and TV shows are robots. So I started to look into that and I started to analyze those characters and come up with five personality traits that would resemble the chatbot that I was going to write. And this was the concept that I created in the end and I called it the lovable droid. What kind of traits do you remember? Yes. The most obvious ones are that they are very logical thinkers. So they're very analytical. They love problem solving. They're also very, very capable. So they're either very intelligent or very strong. And what makes them so likable is that they have a certain childlike awkwardness because they do not know all the social cues and they want to be human-like and they want to relate to humans. They like humans. They want to help them, but they don't always know how. So that really strongly reflects in their language. What I ended up doing was I, I took these character traits. So some of the things I mentioned right now with this awkwardness being really the key to how this robot should talk and speak. And I analyzed quotes and 
videos from pop culture references, right? Like a C-3PO from Star Wars or data from Star Trek. And I started taking out these quotes and analyzing them for grammar rules, for language and linguistic patterns that I could reuse for the chatbot. And this was really the, the most analytical and structural part of the writing that I did. And what I found was that there's a huge contrast in the language of these robots. There's a very antiquated and polite form of speaking that is very clear and correct language. And at the same time, they try to adapt to humans by using human expressions like hooray or oh no. So they're using these so-called interjections to make themselves sound more human because this is what they can learn a lot easier, right? So they, they hear the things, they copy it. And so, for example, I could tell you one quote from Star Wars where C-3PO said, I beg your pardon, what do you mean naked? Right. So this first part is, I beg your pardon, very polite, very antiquated language. What do you mean naked means, of course, a C-3PO doesn't know what naked means because he's a droid and he doesn't understand the concept of naked, but he wants to understand it. So he asks about it and it makes him more likable because it's a very awkward question to ask. So I took these kind of quotes and I turned them into a, a grammatical rule set that I used for the text that I ended up writing for the chatbot. Sounds brilliant. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it was a lot of work, and, yes. <laughs> and is, there, is it written in English or in another language? So far, the chatbot only exists in English. In the future, there's a plan of when the app is released and later on to maybe even have the Spanish version of the app since it's more of a US-based company and, and concept. So for that, of course, it's a bit tricky because then we will have to think about how these translations will work. And since I do not speak Spanish, I will have to get some help from someone to figure that out. And what, what's also important is we did decide to use some idioms and space references and movie references like for example if a user is inactive for a long time in the chat the chatbot which is called Hubble by the way we called it Hubble in the end like the telescope will ask you is somebody out there you know uh, it will not say like hey are you still here it will say is somebody out there so we will also have to translate those and try to get the same kind of meaning in the other languages muy bien <laughs> and is there a place that people can find it right now or is it stealth mode kind of project so the app is actually called Revy. It comes from the word revolution, as I just mentioned before, revolutionizing the hiring market. And it will be released, I think, next year, but only for the US market and for iOS. But then people will be able to use the first version of the app. Of course, there's more to it than just the chatbot. So all of this is currently in development. It's still also a social media platform, so people are able to make accounts and look at job opportunities and things like that. So uh, you will be able to check it out sometime next year if you in the US and have an iPhone. And from there on out, it will be developed further and there will be new features released down the line. But I'm also planning on doing some conference talks on the topic where I will show more of the examples of the text that I actually wrote for the chatbot. And I'm currently writing actually an article also on the topic of the chatbot and how I wrote it. So I will also release that probably at the beginning of next year for people to look at or read through. That's amazing. Do you know where are you planning to publish this article? It will most likely be published on the Parkside Interactive website, so on the company I work at. And I will also, of course, post a link on LinkedIn. So if you follow me on LinkedIn or if you connect with me there, you will for sure not miss it. 
Perfect. Also, make sure to ping me your conference talks and also the article. And we will also share it with our community of people to learn from this case study. Great. Thank you very much. So I wanted to ask you a few more questions about what is the type of content that you consume for your professional work and not necessarily even UX writing or design related stuff. Not necessarily. We can talk about them, but what kind of content inspire you except for sci-fi movies? Oh, that's a fantastic question. Personally, I think we are all creative human beings, no matter if you work in a creative field or not. And the best thing, in my opinion, that you can do is consume as much art as possible. So for me, I, I love reading books. I love reading and writing poetry. I love movies. Music is also a very, very big one. It doesn't really matter so much what you consume or what specific genre, but you should try Try to get inspired by artistry outside of your work, specifically far away from disciplines that you work in, so that you can take inspiration from that and take it into your work, which is exactly what I did, for example, for this chatbot, right? It was a, an idea that came out of nowhere from something I was doing you know, in my free time. So no matter if it's music, writing, art, whatever it is, just try to consume it and, and, and see it as a source of inspiration for your work, even if it's not directly related to it. Can you give me a specific example of a piece of content? There is one poet. She's called Sarah Kay. I think she's currently based in the US and she has some really, really amazing poetry. The first poetry collection book that I ever bought was from her. So she has a poem that's called B and it's about her brother. So that one for me was a big inspiration just emotionally and personally. And also there is Savannah Brown. She's a poet based in the UK and she has a, her first poetry collection is called Graffiti. And I find that one to be very lovely, very inspiring. It's a bit about love and about life. So those are some, some books, some poetry collections that I can recommend. That's awesome. Lately, I'm trying to, I got really hard into Spanish music. I'm trying to learn the language. So I found it when trying to learn English a few years ago, because I'm not a native English speaker, consuming content in English language will help me a lot. So right now I'm just trying to consume as much as Spanish content as I can. So I'm watching like Spanish shows and I have like a Spanish Like telenovelas. <laughs> so I'm trying to be like less dramatic, but I also try <laughs> telenovelas. It's funny because like the language over there is more dramatic. So it's interesting. Yes. Very like, yes. you know, people are like talking about passion. Even phonetically, right? It's a very passionate language. Very passionate language. The amount of time that I heard the word corazón in a song, which means heart, or caliente, which is hot. So the amount of time that I heard the word uh, contigo, which is together, it's like, it's amazing. So anyway. It hits something, yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's interesting. So learning a lot of language through consuming content in that language. That's something I found valuable in the last few weeks. And I think also learning learning a language, any other language, can help you as a UX writer as well, because you start to understand the concept of language in a different way. And people think differently in different languages, right? There is a talk, on a TED talk, a really awesome one. You can find it on YouTube. Yeah. I forgot what her name was, Shaping the Way We Think, by the Way We Talk, right? Like how our 
talking how our language shapes the way we think. It's a really great talk and she talks exactly about how people think differently because of their language. So Spanish, for yes. example, very passionate language. Then, for example, currently I'm trying to learn Chinese. It's a very very poetic language and there are certain really? things in this language that are completely different concepts than what we know for example in english so it broadens your horizon and it can also inspire you for your ux writing work amazing i love the fact that you suggested this specific talk by lera broditsky it's on tab ah, yes, we yes. will also we will also add it on the show notes as well because she even talked about languages that they don't say i feel like the east is the same Well, you don't say right or left, but you talk about like north, south, east, and west. So yes, yes. people that speak these type of languages, they don't say, hey, it's on your right. They say, hey, it's on your, it's, it's there, it's in the north, or hey, it's there, it's in the west. And people that speak those languages actually have a better understanding of where they are in the space. So they always know where the north is, and they always know where east is, mm -hmm. and where west is. So... It's like the language shape the way they perceive their space and surroundings, which is pretty wild. Exactly, exactly. That was a really cool example from the talk. Or she also talks a bit about gender and how there's always a perceived gender to certain words, even in languages that are not gendered. So something that I've been doing a lot looking into inclusive writing, inclusive design is that, for example, in English, you don't. it's not a very gendered language, but there are still some implications, right? Like when you say, oh, you, you see a dog, you say, oh, that's a good boy, right? The dog is a boy. A cat is more likely to be a female, things like that. So, so this is so integrated into our society and into our thinking that whenever we do design with these kind of topics, specifically, for example, gender, we really have to make sure that we're not pushing certain stereotypes or certain thought patterns even more into this direction. And that's where you kind of see the differences in every language. For example, German is my native language. It's a very gendered language. So everything has a feminine, masculine or neutral article to it. And that makes it's way harder, in my opinion, to do proper UX writing in it in a, in a neutral way. So you kind of have to find your way around it. And again, it changes the way you think about certain topics and certain words. So it can be very, very powerful, but also in a negative way in the end. Definitely. In Hebrew, it's the same, by the way. I think in English, it's the easiest way to, to speak about genders because you have you, which is you for everyone. Mm -hmm. But in Hebrew, it's like at, ata, aten, atem. It's like you for a man, you for a woman, you for mm -hmm. a plural man or a plural woman. It's like, it's very, very challenging because if you, on default in Hebrew, when you spoke to plural people, you will talk to the masculine aspect yes. of them. And, and lately there is a lot of discussion in the Hebrew UX community And in general, in, in the linguistic community in Israel, like if there are like a bunch of women next to me, so why should I speak to them on masculine form? Yes, yes, yes. It's the same in French and I think also in Spanish where you have this kind of rule. And I think it's great that there's these, I would call the neo-linguistic people, right? People with a linguistics degree. That's something that's on my list. Maybe one day I will actually study that. Who are trying to now 
pull these things apart and see how we can change our language and how long is it even going to take for us to change it you know it's ingrained in our thoughts because we learned it from from early age on it's been like this for centuries so how can you change the language actively towards a better direction and how many people are going to oppose that that's always the, the the biggest question out there, right? Because there are people who are very much against changing the language. They think once the grammar rules are set, this is how it should be. And this is the fixed rule. But actually, since our society is changing, I think our language should also change and adapt to it. Like in history, language was always all about evolving, always constantly evolving. And it's interesting. It's become a discussion in Israel specifically, and it became like a feminist versus non-feminist discussion, which I don't agree it should mm-hmm. be like that. But it's like men that do not agree that someone would speak to them like they were plural women because of, I don't know, ego or something like that. And women mm-hmm. that insist to speak like in plural woman form, plural feminine form. And, uh, and what I was trying to say is that you could see that there is resistance from, yes. from people to evolve this type of language which is very interesting. Yeah. Language resembles the people. It represents the people and the the way they think, like we were just talking about earlier. You have books like The Handmaid's Tale or some other books even where certain words are being banned from society and they lead to more oppression due to that. So you can really see just how powerful language is, which is why I think in the future we're going to need even more UX writers working in the tech industry to have this kind of sensibility and empathy to figure out how to exactly talk to the users, how to talk to the people that we are addressing in our software. It's an ongoing topic. And these political topics or or these social topics like feminism, they will always be a topic and they will keep, keep growing. And I think no company that wants to have an excellent software product will be able to stay away from these discussions. Because I, I once said this in a talk, every company is political and even not being political is a political statement. Right. And from big companies, people expect there to be political involvement. Bigger companies are supposed to stand up for, let's say, Black Lives Matter or any other movements that are out there because we have this online activism going on. And our digital world is merging more with our real world. And that's why we have to address these topics. And there's really no way of getting around it. The question is just us as UX writers, what can we do and how can we bring this kind of empathy into our writing for the software to make sure that we're inclusive or that we're targeting really our user group and things like that. So incredibly multifaceted topic. And this is why UX writing is not just, you know, writing some button text. It's about sensibility, about inspiration and about reflecting the society and the people that you're designing and writing for. What a great way to end this episode, Sarah. Thank you so uh, much. <laughs> how do you think we should name it? Goodness me, this time it's harder. We talked about so many things. Um, we talked about a lot of things. We started with Figma, then we moved to conversational design, like building a chatbot. Then yes. we talked about culture and consuming different type of content to open your horizons and, and to your writing process. Exactly. I think we should call it maybe something in the direction of UX writing so much more than just a few texts or or something along these lines or a future outlook on UX writing and and what it encompasses. Something like this, maybe. (laughs) Sounds good. I like it. Great.
Thank you so much, Sarah. We will add a link also to your LinkedIn in the show notes as well. Thank you for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. It was really a great conversation. Great conversation. And thank you everyone for joining us for another episode of Writers in Tech. If you stick alone, it was a pleasure to have you. And I'm glad that you enjoyed this conversation. Feel free to join our weekly newsletter. We really invest a lot of efforts in it to make sure that every week you're going to get it to your inbox. And it's not that salesy. We mostly try to create good content for UX writers that is up to date. A weekly blog post. We try to create a podcast episode once in every two weeks. And we have a free UX writing course that I recommend everyone to check it out. That's about it. And I'll see you next time. Bye.